first of all, we're going to look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, thanking you for the beautiful, the beauty of the music this morning, the opportunity to ponder the significance musically of what it is that you have done by sending Jesus Christ into Bethlehem. I pray that it's gripping our hearts and our minds, our souls, as we think about the one who matters most, Jesus. Praying for a calm of the spirit in here. For the person who comes here today so internally conflicted, and they want a unified soul. They want an undivided heart. They want shalom. I pray, Lord, that you will give that as they are committing everything under your lordship, no matter what they feel or what they're going through, what they're facing at this moment. Father, for the person who's pursuing you, desiring you, longing for you, I pray that these verses this morning are going to minister to their point of need and give them still more of what they need and desire. For the person in any of these services that came today, comes today, perhaps conflicted, yes, but even more so skeptical. I'm praying that they're going to find a settled mindset where truth is beginning to integrate all these various thoughts in these verses and unifying itself under Jesus. So, Father, these minutes are important. So we're asking once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I see these verses, my mind goes back to a story that's told of the Vietnam era. Many of us know the name Ross Perot. Now, Ross Perot made untold millions in computer leasing back in the 1960s. But he was looking for a way to contribute to the needs of people, not only in this nation, but globally. Christmas was approaching. And so Mr. Perot decided that he would give a Christmas present to every American prisoner of war being held captive in Vietnam. Now thousands of apostles were wrapped and packed. And there's this fleet of Boeing 707s that were chartered to deliver them into Hanoi. But then the message came from Vietnam that there would be absolutely no way in which these gifts would be delivered to the POWs. Well, Mr. Perot was struggling with trying to find a way to deliver the gift. And he came upon an idea. He decided that as Christmas was drawing closer and the parcels that remained undelivered, he would then take off utilize a chartered fleet, move onwards to Moscow of all places, where his aides would then post the parcels one at a time at the Moscow Central Post Office. 
And interestingly enough, the gift was delivered intact. Nothing was going to hinder him from delivering the gift to the one held hostage. The passage we're looking at this morning has to do with the one who would make absolutely certain the gift would be delivered to those held hostage. People like you. People like me. It's a rich passage of Scripture. It's used in Handel's Messiah elsewhere. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And there are three incredible distinctives I want to draw out from this passage that I think can help us to better understand the significance of the Christmas story. Let's dig in. Verses 1 through 3, first of all, that as we consider you and me, the promised Messiah, I want us to first of all note what I'll call the grace here that is retentive. The grace that simply will not let go of you, of me. Now in verse 1, it appears as though that's exactly what the tribes to the north were hoping They wanted to be released from the lordship, you see, of Messiah. They were worshiping idols. They were seeking false gods. Everything, though, at the same time is going wrong for them. And the spiritual was afflicting them in the political realm. You will find in verse 1 that there is a but. But there will be no gloom. But evidently, that's because there had been gloom. In chapter 8, verse 22, we were told, And they will look to the earth, but behold distress, darkness, and the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. These were the tribes of the north. They were pursuing false gods, walking away from God, wanting to be able to be separated, to be able to do their own thing, their own way, according to their own will. But you've got a God here whose grace simply will not let go. And so there will be no gloom. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now what I want you to see in verse 1 is that there is what I will call the contrast of grace. Mark the phrase, the former time, and mark the phrase, the latter time. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So now, what we find here is that the Assyrian forces are making their way increasing havoc throughout the northern territories. Meanwhile, the northern territories are looking for a way other than seeking God. So they enter into alliance with with Syria, of all nations, to be able to defend themselves against the Assyrians. Here come the Assyrians. And it looks like doom, it looks like gloom for the people of the north. In the former time, he brought, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Let's throw a map up on the screen and see if we can get a better understanding, you see, of of what we're dealing with here when we we look at this. 
Now, if you go up here, what you will find is that this is the region that was first to be attacked. They're vulnerable people. It's fascinating so often that people where they're so vulnerable are those that simply will not seek God. This happens in our own personal relationships. Things are going wrong, you would think they would seek God, but rather they turn away from God. These people are vulnerable at this point to military attack. This would be the first in which the, the tribes would find that invasion is occurring. Go down a little further, there's Zebulun right there. And these are two tribes being described at this point. And there, there's the Sea of Galilee. Feel vulnerable this morning? And you find yourself looking back over your life history and you're saying there are times past or maybe time present where you are, you are distancing yourself from God the way, the way Naphtali is here and the way Zebulun is here. And now you're vulnerable. You've lacked the presence of God, Emmanuel. But now here comes the presence of the Syrians over here. And furthermore, there's going to be the presence of the Assyrians coming down and attacking. Where do you go? What do you do? But notice you've got a God here who hangs on to you. You've got the God who doesn't let go. Matt Redmond puts it this way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back. I know you are near. And I will fear no evil, for my God is with me, Emmanuel. And if my God is with me, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Oh, no, you never let go. Through the calm and through the storm. Oh, no, you never let go in every high and every low. Oh, no, you never let go, Lord. You never let go of me. And even when you are faithless, you've got a God who is faithful to the promise that he's delivered. And so maybe right now your experience is a Zebulun experience. Maybe your experience is a Naphtali experience. And maybe you distance yourself from God. And as you distance yourself from God, you found that you are increasingly vulnerable to the challenges, the difficulties, the extremes of life. What you need to do now with me is this. You need to connect the dots. Are you going to live in the latter time or the former time? You're going to live in the former time or you're going to live in the latter time? Because what he wants you to do now is to see both the contrast and the connection. Notice the contrast and then make the connection. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And don't miss that phrase. He has made the way. And then there was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. 
and no one comes to the Father but through me. And you've got a God who can deliver the gift. Now, you find yourself connecting the latter time with the former time, and you see now the significance of what he wants to do here. You make your way up to verse 2, and not only have you contrasted in verse 1 the latter time and the former time, but now in verse 2 you're going to contrast darkness with light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And you might remember when you made your way into your Newer Testament and you were pondering the significance of what the Apostle John had written, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And so now you're asking yourself this, am I living in the former time or the latter time? Am I walking in the darkness or am I finding myself in the midst of the light? Because this is where God will want me to be able to live, thrive, develop. In which direction do I gravitate? Former or latter? Darkness or light? Vince Lombardi wrote a book, wrote a book entitled Run to Daylight. All you Packer fans. He's got a chapter in it, a chapter on running backs. Describes how football players learn all the plays, practice them over and over and over again until it becomes part of your reflexive movements. And when game time arrives, he notes, they have to remember all the numbers, all the signals, all the advice, all the coaching. But as the running back tucks the ball under his arm, think Jim Taylor, think Paul Honing, tucks the ball under his arm, begins to run, he has time to remember just one thing, Lombardi says, run to daylight. If the hole in the opposing team's defense doesn't open where you expected it to open up, and you see daylight somewhere else, run to daylight. And if you get through the line and the secondary begins to close in, again, you look for the light. And you run for daylight. And while darkness seems to be descending upon that region as the Assyrians advance, the one who says, look for the branch, the one who says, look for Emmanuel, here is the one who says, if you are living in the former times, embrace the latter times. If you're living in the darkness, come looking for the light. And then as you do so, check out verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now look very carefully at what you're spotting here in verse 3. Not once, not twice, three times there's some kind of reference here to joy. He's saying, if you're going to live in the latter times, understand joy. If you're going to live according to the light, understand the joy. Because what I want you to understand with me is that joy is an incredible distinctive of the Christian experience. J.I. Packer understood that. 
He says, if we are miserable, it is because we have chosen to say no to joy. The fact remains that God intended joy for us from the start. And you say, but Gary, you don't know my circumstances. But God has so distinguished joy in your fabric that he wants you and me to understand that the second element in the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Love, joy, peace, patience. That you're not driven by the externals of life, You're driven by the internal of life. Not the problems and the pressures from the outside, but rather the overarching person on the inside. It was Nehemiah who was able to say, the joy of the Lord is our strength. This morning, if you feel as though joy is dissipated, diminished, declining in your own personal experience, Ask yourself some serious questions about strength as it relates to joy. Because if your strength is being diminished, there is a direct relationship spiritually to the joy that's meant to be distinguishable within our own personal experience. Because not only does this distinguish the Christian, joy furthermore is integrated into every aspect of the Christian life. So that if even medically financially, relationally, you find yourself facing conflictedness and it seems as though this is the former rather than the latter and it's darkness rather than light. Reposition yourself and understand what it is that God has done. He has not only promised the gift, he's delivered the gift, given you the latter days and given you light so that not once, not twice, but three times now you're able to embrace this idea of joy and understand what Nehemiah was able to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and furthermore understand what Paul was able to do when he wrote regarding himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Have you pondered that? Sorrowful, that has to do with, yeah, you're saddened by the experiences of those and those things around you. But joyful because of what God has done within you. Now you pull that together and look very carefully at a passage of Scripture that appears on the screen from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Where, lo and behold, what you saw was that in that passage in your Newer Testament, here's a situation that Matthew's describing that where, where Jesus has arrived on the scene. He's arrived on the scene in a region around Galilee. And he's leaving Nazareth. Pamela and I, in October, were in Nazareth, walking the streets. As we walked the streets, what struck me was a slogan and a statement that's been made among the people in that setting, that Nazareth is the Arab capital of Israel. I was fascinated by the political slogans, the campaigns, and the likes. Highly Muslim, 
Here's where Jesus positions himself after John's been arrested. Things seem to be saddening in terms of the outward experiences of life. His forerunner has been arrested. His cousin, he goes into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went in to live in Capernaum by the sea. Where? Does this ring a bell? In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus has come. The package has been delivered. This is not former time. This is latter time. This is not darkness. This is light. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As a Vince Lombardi would tell you, you run for daylight. Or as Arthur Gordon put it, with regard to a finding from the end of World War II, an inscription that was found on a small gravestone after a devastating air raid on Britain. Quote, There is not enough darkness in all the world to put out the light of one small candle. And I ponder that on a Christmas Eve where after a brief devotional I, I step forward I light my candle and then I step to the side because I don't want to be the focal point. Some of the various leaders of the church come forward, take their candles and then begin to light row by row by row by row candles. The setting is dark initially, but slowly but surely what emerges is this increasing sense of light in the midst of the darkness. No matter what you've been experiencing, no matter what you're facing, shift from the former time to the latter time, shift from darkness to light. And allow this incredible gift to so energize you and give you strength because not once, not twice, three times in the Hebrew is this word rooted in the idea of joy. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. But this is God at work. Here's our response. They rejoice before you. And then using the blend and the connection of the laws of the harvest with the laws of the military, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil, you ponder the significance of how you've got to go through spring to get to fall when the harvest comes in. You've got to go through the conflicts of life in order to be able to experience the, the spoils of victory. And here's now a God who's saying, consider this, this promised Messiah. Note, first of all, my grace. It's retentive. It doesn't let go 
as Redmond would put it. And as he hangs on to you, no matter what your experience, don't pursue the way of Zebulun. Don't pursue the way of Naphtali. Run for daylight and seek your Jesus. And as you do so, you've got your first of the three distinctives. But here comes the second one your way, and I want you to see it now. It's coming out of verses 4, 5, and 6. Second of all, as we consider this promised Messiah, note furthermore, not only the grace that's retentive, but the Son who is given. Now, to fully understand where this is going, there is a word that appears at the beginning of verse 4, again verse 5, again verse 6. F-O-R, for. See it there in your Bible? Circled in your Bible. That little word tells you that what God is doing is he's giving you a reason now for joy. The joy of the Lord's your strength. If your strength is being dissipated, check out your joy. Now what he does at this point is he's going to give you the reasons for joy that are found here. Not once, not twice, three times. Joy was spoken of three times, so now the reasons are offered three times. Number one, verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And you say, yeah, I'm not getting it. What's that all about? When he says, you have broken on the day of Midian, he's pointing them backward in time to when God was faithful, when the people were faithless. The Midianites were approaching. They were kind of like the terrorist organization of that time period. And as they were approaching, here's this man being raised up by the name of Gideon. An unlikely man for such a time as this. Now, what they would want, of course, is to have massive troops to be able to fend off the Midian threats. But what God does is he whittles down the troops so that they realize that they are not to put faith and trust in their military. They're to put faith and trust in their God. And God delivers. Now, what are you putting your faith and trust in? In whom are you putting your faith and trust? Midian should have jumped right out of the pages at that point. And so they begin to think about the fact you have broken as on the day of Midian, as the oppressors of the Assyrians are making their way and Zebulun's feeling vulnerable and Naphtali's feeling vulnerable, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in the blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And I thought about that as Pamela and I were standing near a wall in Jerusalem in October. There were bullet holes in this wall, you see. And they came from a particular war that the Israelites had to endure in 1967. And as our guide was explaining the reason for these bullet holes, my mind's racing at this point because I'm thinking 1967. I know all about that war. That was when Egypt issued a postage stamp showing Egypt's leader, Nasser, with a map of Israel in flames in his right hand. A postage stamp. The background to the story. 
as I'm pondering the bullet holes in that wall. Nasser demanded the withdrawal of UN forces from the Sinai. He was going to cripple the economy, you see, of Israel. He furthermore announced that there was a gulf that would be closed Israeli shipping. And so now the strangulation of Israel was taking place. Egypt lined up 80,000 men, Syria 40,000, Jordan 40,000, Saudi Arabia 20,000, Iraq 5,000, all to help Syria in an attack. Syria. That's what the tribes to the north put their faith and trust in. Syria. Known in Old Testament times as Aram. To be able to fend off an Assyrian attack. Before the fighting started, the radio in Cairo, Egypt, announced, quote, Our people have been waiting 20 years for this battle. Now they will teach Israel the lesson of death. Nasser went on radio to say that any war with Israel, quote, will be total. The objective will be to destroy Israel. A Syria, a Syria army commander predicted Israel's destruction in four days. Israel was hedged in on three sides, outnumbered 20 to 1. Israel won. As I'm staring at those bullet holes, and I'm moving then from the military experience and the historical experience to what people of our congregation might be facing where it seems as though day in, day out, they experience the vulnerabilities of all the various hostilities and challenges that might come their way in one shape or form, some expected, some unexpected. But God is true to his promise. And God is the one who was faithful enough to give his son. And in the giving of his son, you're up to verse 6 at this point because not only did you spot a reason in verse 4 that began with the word for and verse 5 that began with the word for where God is victorious and he is able to achieve what it is he seeks out to do. But now you make your way into verse 6 and whether it's Handel's Messiah or some other form of music, this comes your way. For to us, notice the plural, a child is born. What fascinates me at this point is it's the very same word that was used when God spoke to Eve in the garden. And she promised one who was to come, which she anticipated to be Messiah. And then he defines it even further. To us, a son is given. And what comes next, I typically say out loud to myself when I go into a in the booth to vote, the government shall be upon his shoulder. I know it says we the people. But nonetheless, God is sovereign. We are not. And what comes next is not one, not two, not three, but four names. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
in your heart, in your mind, your soul get enriched by each of those names that come together to make such a powerful statement to you personally. I think of E.A. Ruskin, a missionary of overseas, who was telling some Africans about Jesus and the various names given to him. And someone asked, why did this Jesus have so many names? And Ruskin responded, quote, the beauty, the fullness, the magnificence of Jesus cannot be expressed by just one name. Break them down. The first is wonderful counselor. The word wonder was used in Genesis 18.14 when Abram and Sarah were given information that they were going to have a child. And they had to grapple with the whole question of, is this possible? But when you've got a God of all possibilities, when you've got a God of all abilities, you realize that this idea of wonderful carries with the idea of the supernatural. He is the wonderful counselor. And so when you're confused and you're in deep need of counsel, you go to where deity is found the one who has all ability, wonderful counselor. This is the exact opposite, in fact, of what the king at that time in Judah offered, Ahaz. He was seeking counsel, but he was going to all the wrong places in order to find it. You go to God, and you take the first name, and you tie it to the second name, mighty God, or in the Hebrew, warrior God. This mighty God is the God who is able then to provide the needed protection in our times of incredible weakness. This would minister now to the people who feel the Assyrian assault coming their way. We've got this wonderful counselor, and so when our military turn to one another seeking counsel from one another, we've got the wonderful counselor. We've got, second of all, the mighty God. We can think if he could do it in, with the Midianites, he can do it now with the Assyrians. Now you're up to the third name as well, everlasting father, everlasting. And you draw a line back to where it said to us, a child is born. That speaks of humanity. But when you get to everlasting father, that speaks of deity. It means you've got two natures in one person. You see where this is going? This is the one born in Bethlehem to die on Calvary. The one born of the virgin. So you could have two natures in one person. Prince, prince of peace. And what captures my attention at this point is that he means a peace as a result of conflict, peace as a result of war, peace as a result of oppression. In other words, you people have gone through all the conflicts of life. It's a peace which presupposes victory. You've got a victorious one. And three days later, what God did was raise Jesus from the dead. And so now, what you've got is last week's study, Emmanuel, God with us. You've got this week's study, Wonderful Counselor, and so on. 
And so Amy Grant's song now simply comes to the forefront when she links it all together, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, Lord of life, Lord of all. He's the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Holy One, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And you see how all this begins to fit together in your own life experience? But he's not done yet. Because he's got a third distinctive for you. And it comes out of verse 7. Because in verse 7 it reads, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Thirdly, as we consider the promised Messiah, note here the reign which is enduring on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. And so there's Jesus eventually on that cross, and above that head of his is the wording, King of the Jews. But in your Older Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, We are told that this is to be an everlasting kingdom. How do you manage that conflict where you've got the king who represents the kingdom and he's dying on that cross, yet you're told that this is to be eternal. This is to be everlasting. He's to be the everlasting one. Unless three days later he is raised from the dead. You see? And now you're pulling together the promises of eight centuries prior to the Bethlehem story and born of the virgin to the cross of Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord over all. You pull that together, and now you understand then the significance of how this is phrased on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then I want you to notice here the passion of it all, the intensity of it all, the certainty of the Lord. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And notice that for the first time in this chapter, capital L-O-R-D is used. He's covenantal. He wants a relationship with you, not merely religion from you. He wants this to be everlasting for you, for me. People long for that sort of peace. You know the story. Midst of World War I, Christmas Eve, 1914, all is quiet, France's Western Front, English Channel to the Swiss Alps, trenches come within 50 miles of Paris, war was only five months old, but already approximately 80,000 men have been either wounded or killed. And every soldier wondering whether Christmas Day would bring another round of fighting and killing, but this then happened. British soldiers raised the Merry Christmas signs. Carols are being sung from both German and British trenches. Christmas dawns with unarmed men leaving their trenches as officers of both sides trying unsuccessfully to stop their troops from meeting the enemy in the middle of no man's land. For songs, Conversations for the exchange of for the exchange of a Christmas gift with the enemy. They pass Christmas Day peacefully along miles of the front. <laughs> At one 
point, the British played soccer with the Germans, who, by the way, won three to two, if you're keeping score. In some places, this spontaneous truce continued the next day. A writer tells us neither side willing to fire the first shot. And finally, the war resumed only when fresh troops arrived, when the high command of both armies ordered that further informal understandings, quote-unquote, with the enemy would be punishable by treason. The truce was temporal, but this peace that comes in this gift is eternal. As a Ross Perot makes his way to a setting in Moscow, Christmas drawing closer, the gifts remain undelivered. And finally, in frustration, he makes the strategy come to be. His aides then post the parcels one at a time at the Moscow Central Post Office, a post office that the leadership in Vietnam would have respected and accepted. The gifts delivered. God delivers the gift. God delivered the gift. It's a grace that retains. He doesn't let go. It's the sun who's given. It's the rain that's enduring. It's all about your Jesus. Let's stand together. So, Father, I'm praying now if there's one here in any of these services that comes today, and they're wondering, but how does this relate? What do I do with this? First of all, Father, if that person is in their own land of Zebulun, in their own land of Naphtali, and they've made a series of decisions that have, that have distanced themselves from you. I pray now verses 1 through 3 break down deep in their heart with the idea that we've got a grace here that doesn't let go. You hold on. We are to be faithful to the faithful one. For the one father that is struggling in the midst of all this and trying to understand the purpose of all this, we've got a son who's given two natures in one person, dying in our place for our sins. So if there's any today that came not knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, show me Jesus is their substitute. He died for us. We're to believe in him. And for the one who's so caught up in the temporal, remind him or her, what we're talking about is eternal, a relationship with you through Jesus. May they pursue that and trust you alone. We thank you for these verses. Press them now upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.